You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. So a few mornings ago, I was praying, talking with God, and as I prayed, God's Spirit convicted me that I have a critical heart. I make judgments about other people, I compare myself to other people, and often I come out looking very favorable (laughs) in those comparisons. And and honestly, I was convicted, I was cut. And I said, God, I really need your help to stop comparing myself with other people. It was this brief moment of grace. You ever experienced that when you see your sin clearly and can confess it? But it was just a moment. Because right after saying that, I thought, you know, I should confess this sin at at our staff meeting. This is an area I want prayer for. And then I had another thought. I thought, you know, I haven't heard many Christians confess this sin publicly. And then I thought, you know, most Christians probably aren't even aware that they're even committing the sin of comparison. And then, and you can tell where this is going... I had another thought. I thought, you know, I must be a uniquely (laughs) self-aware Christian that I'd even be able to see this propensity in myself and recognize it. And then I thought, oh, no. I just did it again. You know, it's rare to commit a sin while you're in the process of confessing that sin. But that's how insidious and deeply rooted the sin of comparison can be. So the Bible calls us to make judgments. It does. Not all judgment is bad. We're supposed to judge between truth and error, between light and darkness, between good and evil. We we have to make those judgments. Otherwise, we could never correct our own thinking and behavior. We couldn't help other believers correct their thinking or behavior, which we're called to do. That's what love requires. The Bible calls us to have critical heads. It never calls us to have critical hearts. And yet it seems I'm hardwired to do this. You ever felt that way? Uh, Because of the fall of humanity, it's not just that I have an inclination to view myself highly. I have an inclination to view other people pretty lowly. Jesus says it this way in Matthew 15, that, that out of the heart come evil thoughts. He's talking about reasonings, judgments. It's just a little comparison factory in here all the time. Thinking highly of myself, looking down on other people. And if you look at human civilizations, every human civilization creates hierarchies and structures, and the goal is to be at the very top. The very top. That's comparison. It seems pretty innate. Uh, Comparison's a trap, and here's why it's a trap. If you think others are doing better than you, what does it lead to? Envy, despair, resentment. Conversely, if you think you're doing better than others, what does it lead to? Pride, self-inflation, self-congratulation, callousness at the plight of other people often. Uh, This is a trap. How do you get free from the trap of comparison? So we're in this series on Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 
And we've seen that in the first four chapters of the book, Paul confronts the Corinthians' biggest problem, which was division. Corinthians had divided into to little fan clubs, as we've seen. And to be a real Christian, you had to follow the right leader. And so some said Paul is the best leader to follow, others Apollos, and others Peter. And as a result, this, this church was fracturing. And Paul identifies the problem in chapter 1, the fan clubs, and then he goes on to address all of the root issues that are causing the problem. And now in chapter 4, he's going to return once again to where he began and talk about this problem. In today's passage, verse 6 of chapter 4, he says this, that I have been writing all of these things so that none of you Corinthians may be puffed up in favor of one leader against another leader. That's my point. Stop comparing leaders. Stop elevating this Christian leader. Stop denigrating this one. Stop comparing. In fact, give up on this race you have for worldly status. See, the Corinthians' desire to identify with the best leader was rooted in a deeper problem, and that's just the need to be the best. The need to create a scorecard for life and to get the highest score so that you can be superior to other people, even superior to other believers. And I think that's a universal human problem, don't you? And here's why. All of us want to know we're doing well, that we're succeeding. And what's the easiest way to know you're doing well? You're doing better, right? As long as I know I'm doing better than that guy, than that woman, then I know I'm doing good. It's so deeply ingrained. That's the temptation. That's the trap. How do you break out of the comparison trap? Two things in this passage Paul teaches us. How to stop making comparisons. How to stop making judgments and measuring people to see where they stack up. And then the deeper issue, how to stop taking comparisons. How to stop accepting the world's standards and using them as our scorecard. How do we do each of those and instead uh, use Christ, stop doing those and use Christ as our measuring stick instead? That's what we're looking at. So let's pray and then we'll look at this passage. So God, as we look at this passage, I ask that your spirit would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to obey what you have to teach us, Jesus. I ask it in your name. Amen. How do you break free from making comparisons, from, from constantly assessing where am I in relation to other people? Well, it starts, Paul says, with how we view ourselves and specifically that we would view our life, here's the key word for this morning, as a steward. A steward. If you view yourself and your life as a steward, you will see how stupid it is to constantly compare yourself to other people. What do I mean? Let's look at this passage. Here's Paul's big point. This is how one should regard us Christian leaders as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. The Corinthians viewed Christian leadership as a path to worldly status and wealth and influence and they thought that Christian leaders, in a sense, owned the church. The church belonged to the leaders. But we saw last week, Paul flips that on his head, doesn't he? The, the Corinthians were saying, I am of Paul. Paul says, we are of you. It's not that you exist to serve us, Corinthians. We actually exist to serve you. But Paul quickly clarifies what it means to be a servant. 
And he defines service in terms of stewardship. Here's why that's important. See, Paul doesn't serve the Corinthians ultimately, does he? Who does a steward serve? His master. So he's saying, though I serve you, I'm not accountable to you. I'm ultimately accountable to who? To Jesus, to God. He is the master. See, in Paul's day, uh, a steward was a household manager. When you hear that word, that's what you should think of. He's the servant in the house who manages the financial and business affairs of the house. And who does he do that for? The owner of the house. Paul has already said the, the church is God's house. We saw that last week. Now he's continuing the metaphor. He's saying, who am I? I'm the household manager. God has stewarded to me the mystery of the gospel, this message about Christ that was concealed. Now it's revealed. God has entrusted it to me. It's not my message. It's God's message. It's not my ministry. It's God's ministry. So I have to defend it, hold it, believe it, promote it, build the church on it according to the will of who? The owner. That's the point. Paul is saying, view me as a steward. But in the context, it's clear that Paul is also saying, Corinthians, view yourselves as stewards. Because in this passage, Paul is applying these things to himself so that the Corinthians can imitate him. That's the point. Here's the point for us. The key to killing comparison is to view my life as a stewardship from God. If I view myself as a steward, I see how stupid, stupid comparison is. Why? What does a stewardship mindset do? Three things. First, I see that every blessing I have in my life comes from who? The owner. So it's pretty silly to compare my blessings to your blessings. That's the first thing. Uh, the point of being a steward is that we don't create things. We manage things on behalf of the owner. And this is what the Corinthians had forgotten, that all of their blessings were ultimately a gift that had been entrusted to them that they'd received from God. That's why Paul goes on to say in verse 7, who sees anything differently in you? We could also translate that, who are you to be passing judgments, Corinthians? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul's getting feisty here, isn't he? This is a rebuke. See, these believers had experienced the grace of God in a powerful way. They had not just been saved into the kingdom. They were experiencing the miraculous presence of God. We saw this in chapter 1. There are miraculous healings in this church, supernatural manifestations of the Spirit. There's prophecy. There's words of knowledge. Crazy stuff is happening. And here's the problem. The Corinthians saw that. Those were evidences of God's grace and they thought, we must be pretty special. If I can speak in tongues, if I can prophesy, if I can heal, that means I'm a superior kind of Christian. That means I'm a better kind of Christian. In fact, these Christians who don't do this, uh, you know, they're kind of less than Christians. And Paul says, who do you think you are? What, what gift have you received from God that you did not receive? That's a beautiful summary of all of Paul's theology there, isn't it? All of life is a gracious gift and stewardship from God. This is the first point about being a steward. To be a steward is to be a recipient. I'm not the creator of my gifts. Whether they're spiritual gifts, material gifts, any gifts, 
All of it is from God. So the moment I take pride in those things or take credit for those things, I've forgotten what? Where they come from. See, the truth is, the more deeply you look at any blessing or advantage in your life, the more clearly you see how little you had to do with any of it. This is a deeply un-American way of looking at life, by the way, isn't it? But it's a gospel way of looking at life, and I need this reminder all the time. All the time. I was reading an article a few days ago about millennials, and I always perk up when I hear because I'm a millennial, and I want to compare myself. So um, I'm reading this article about millennials, and it's like millennials struggle to own homes and the home ownership woes of millennials. And I'm like, I'm a millennial, and I own a home, and I own a home in the Bay Area. And immediately I had this little self-congratulatory, you know, you did it. Did I do it? Well, I started thinking about that blessing. Jeff, why do you own a home in the Bay Area? Well, you didn't decide when you were born, the most affluent culture in world history, or that you'd be born with certain advantages, or that your parents would pay for your college, or that you'd be able to live rent-free for a few years, and you can't take any credit for your wife's career and how much money she's made, or that you'd have the financial means that, that you didn't know you'd have, or that you'd buy a house at the very bottom of the market. You didn't time any of that. In fact, your own hard work, who gave you the mental acuity to do that, or the strength, or the good fortune, or the opportunities, or any of that, and the more you look into it, you go, wow. Can't really take credit, can you? And see, for any gift in your life, any advantage, you're not the creator, you're the steward. And so anything you're taking pride in right now, looking a little deeply, the wealth you have, Deuteronomy says it was God that gave you the power to create wealth. Your intellect, God gave you that intellect. Your family, God gave you that family. You can't take credit for any of it ultimately. And obviously you can't take credit for any gospel blessing. That is totally of grace. Grace is the great leveler in the Christian life. And the only reason I compare is because I'm starting to think of myself as an owner rather than a steward, right? I don't create my gifts. I receive them from God. So that's the first thing about a stewardship mindset. Everything, every advantage is a gift. Second, this redefines success because if everything is a gift, it's a trust. And my job is to manage it according to whose will? The will of the owner. Here's the second point. My success is defined not by the people around me, but by the owner. If you're a steward, what's success? Is it being a better steward than the people around you? Beating the curve? No. Success can only be defined in relationship to who? The owner. And what the owner wants. That's why Paul goes on to say, verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found what? Trustworthy. That's it. That's the only definition of success for a steward is that you would do with the thing you've been entrusted what the person who entrusted it to you wants you to do. That's it. Think about it this way. Uh, imagine that you were going to set up a living trust for your kids. And you wanted the estate and all of your assets to be divided evenly between your kids. And so you hire an executor for your trust. And you say, that's what I want. And he goes, sounds great. I got a better idea. Trust me on this. I'm going to take all of your assets. I'm going to buy a big home. It's going to be an Airbnb. And I'm going to make a lot of money. It's going to be great. Is that a good steward? No, you'd say, you're crazy. You have one job, one job. Do what I say with my stuff. That's it, right? 
Executor, carry out my will. That's it. We're all executors of God's will, period. The only way to define success in the Christian life is faithfulness to God to fulfill the wishes of the owner. So your time, your treasure, your talents are different than my time, my treasure, my talents. They're different stewardships, same owner, and the only thing that matters is I'm being faithful to what the owner has given to me. Do you see how crazy it is to compare yourself to other people? What you've been given is not what other people have been given. Different gifts, different advantages. All that matters is are we being faithful with what God has entrusted to us? Are we obeying the Bible and using God's stuff? Because ultimately it's not my time, treasure and talents, is it? It's his time, treasure and talents. Am I using it the way God wants? That was the Corinthians' problem. They were applying their own standard of success to the Christian life and not the Bible's definition of success, which is faithfulness. That's why Paul goes on in verse 6 to say what? I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. What things is Paul talking about here? I think he's talking about all of these images of leadership in the church he has just mentioned, right? He says, we are servants in God's field. We are builders in God's house. We are stewards of God's stuff. What's the overriding idea there? <laughs> that God defines success. That it's about responsibility to God. That's the point. He's saying, I have said all of that that you may not go beyond what is written. Here's what Paul means. I don't want you to create a worldly definition of success that goes beyond what Scripture says success is. Does that make sense? Success, according to Scripture, is faithfulness to God. That's it. That's how we define success. Am I faithful with what Jesus has given me? Not how am I doing with other people? We'll return to this idea of a worldly standard in, in, in just a second. But that was the problem. Only the owner can define success. He gives gifts. He defines success. But, but see, comparison is so insidious that, that we might believe all of this and still compare ourselves. Because we do, don't we? We might think, well, okay, I'm supposed to be faithful to Jesus. But you know, if I look at my faithfulness to Jesus, and then I look at your faithfulness to Jesus, I feel pretty good about my faithfulness to Jesus. In fact, I'm doing pretty well with my faith. In fact, I think I'm better at being faithful to Jesus than you are. So, oh, okay, no, I'm doing well at being faithful. Not saying you've ever done. That's what I did when I was praying, right? Well, my faithfulness to Jesus is a little better than yours, right? But even that is stupid. And here's why. It's not just that God gives us our blessings. It's not just that God defines success. It's that only God is in a position to determine whether or not we're being successful. You can't determine that. I can't determine that. Only God can determine it. That's why Paul goes on to say this. But with me, it is a very small thing, the littlest thing, that I should be judged by you or any human court. The Corinthians were trying to measure Paul, right? So how does he stack up against other impressive worldly leaders? Are we impressed enough with him? He says, that's the littlest thing to be judged by you. I don't care what you think. And don't you love the little underhanded, like, slight Paul gives here? You are any human court. What's the subtext? Like, you're acting like a merely human court. <laughs> like a worldly court. You're just thinking just like the world thinks here, right? It's a loving little jab here. He's prodding at him a little bit. Paul says, I don't care what you think of my faithfulness ultimately. 
I only care about it to the degree that your view lines up with God's view. Because ultimately, who's he accountable to? God. Now, here's what's amazing. Paul goes even further. It's not just that the Corinthians are not in a position to judge the effectiveness of his ministry. What does Paul say? I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Here's what Paul is saying. Not that he has a perfectly clean conscience or he's never done anything wrong. Here's what he's saying. If I look at my life, I think I'm being faithful. I think I'm stewarding what God has given me well, but who cares what I think? Ultimately, it still just matters what God thinks. Now, isn't that amazing for Paul to say that? Because if anyone in the history of the Christian church could have bragged about their ministry, who is Paul? He could have said, don't you know who I am? I'm Paul. I'm Paul. I started the church, basically. I, I'm, you know, I'm reshaping the Western world. I, I'm Paul. Do you, have, do you know who I am? Paul has no idea what the effectiveness of his ministry is. I'm not in a position to be it. Only the steward, only the owner can determine whether the steward is being faithful. Only. And, and see, here's the problem with comparison. It's not just that we don't really know how other people are doing in their heart of hearts in following Jesus. We don't even know how effective we are. In fact, we're not even going to learn how effective we are until the return of Christ. That's why Paul goes on to say, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Remember, Paul is focused on the final judgment. We saw this last week, right? We can build into the church with shoddy materials or quality materials. And at the end, our work will be evaluated and we'll see what really lasts, right? What work did we do that was quality work for the gospel? And now Paul is reminding them of that and saying, the judgment on our lives is not ours to make. Ultimately, the only one who can determine whether I was a success is Jesus. And what's amazing about this is I don't even have a clear view of my own motives, Paul is saying, as I do ministry. I think I'm doing well, but when Christ appears, he's going to disclose the hidden motives of the heart. What was I doing for the good of others and the glory of Christ? What was I doing just for my own advantage? I see it through a glass darkly with that stuff. I don't always know the motivations of my heart. Jesus does. He will reveal them and he will commend people. Now, now here's a question. Do you think there are going to be any surprises at the last judgment? Oh, yeah. Big surprises. Some people who seemed wildly successful in this life whether in business or in ministry or in their families or whatever, going to turn out they were building with shoddy materials. There's going to be people who were obscure that you have never heard of. They were ministering faithfully and get high praise and commendation from God. Well done. Well done. That's what you're living for is to hear that well done. Good and faithful steward, servant. That's what we're living for, Right? But here's the thing, any assessment of another person's effectiveness now is premature. 
it's too soon. We just don't know how all this pans out. I mean, think about how often in this own life we don't know how it pans out. How many times has someone who seems wildly successful in ministry turned out to be a fraud? How many times has someone seemed to have it all together in their life and it turns out their whole life was built on a house of cards and it collapses? That happens all the time. The final judgment will just show that even starker relief. So whenever I think I'm doing well, or, oh, they're doing better than me. Who am I? I just really am not in a position to gauge the effectiveness of work and work done for the Lord. So that's the point. My gifts are received. I can't boast in them. Jesus defines success, not the world. Third, I can't even assess how successful I'm being. Pretty hard to make comparisons if you believe that, right? So that's how we get free from making comparisons. What about taking comparisons. See, see, here's the, the bottom line. The Corinthians were acting like a human court, a court of public opinion. What does that mean? They had basically accepted the world's standards of success as Christian standards of success. So now Paul gets to the deeper problem and says, Corinthians, you need to start making judgments like Christians and not like Corinthians. And, and here's what is so crazy about the gospel is that the gospel turns our whole idea of what a successful life looks like completely on its head. In fact, if we live by God's standards, often we will seem foolish according to worldly standards. And until we embrace that, we will never be free from this desire to conform to the standards of the world around us. So let's look at the, the Corinthians' problem, which is taking worldly standards as their own, and then Paul's solution. Here's the problem. We want the world's standards, even though we belong to Jesus. Look at what Paul says in, in verse 8. And by the way, I just have to preface this. I love this section because Paul is sarcastic, like really sarcastic. And that's my love language. So like if I, if I make fun of you, I really love you. And, uh, and if you make fun of me, I'll just assume it's because you love me, right? Even if you don't. But, but this is my love language. So I love what Paul's doing here. He says, look, look at you, Corinthians. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. What's Paul poking at here? See, the Corinthians had this misunderstanding of the Christian life. And they took things that were true about the Christian life, but distorted them and looked at them through a worldly lens. Here's how. The Christians thought, man, we're in the kingdom of God. We have Christ as our king. We have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Look at our inheritance in Christ. We're going to inherit the world. Look at how much God has given us. Well, if God is the king and we're God's kids, how should we live on earth? <laughs> like royalty. Right? If we're in the kingdom, then we should have status now. We should have power now. We should have privilege. In fact, in the eyes of the world, we should be the most successful people imaginable. Why? Because we're God's kids and he's the king. That, that's the idea here. And what Paul is poking at here is he's saying, you've taken these truths of the gospel, but now you're looking at them through a worldly lens. And you're equating success in the Christian life with worldly success. You're saying, if God has blessed me in these ways, it must mean all these earthly blessings over here. All these things the world wants, God will give me. High status, privilege, power. 
And when the Corinthians do this, they're looking more like Corinth than like Christ, right? We've seen this already. Corinth was a culture where you could be at the bottom rung of society and get ahead. There was economic opportunity. You could climb the ladder. You could ascend in status. And Roman culture was the most status-conscious culture imaginable. Everyone knew where they were in the pecking order. You knew it by how people talked, how they walked, what clothes they wore, what titles they gave each other, the way they would be addressed in public. It was this pecking order, and everyone knew right where they were. And now the Corinthians think, well, we're God's kids, so we should just ascend the social ladder, right? And Paul's poking fun at them now. He's saying that's not what it means to have blessings in Christ. This is our danger as Christians is that we take a worldly standard of success and we just superimpose it on the gospel and then say, well, if I'm really blessed by God, I'll get ahead in the eyes of the world. Not that Christians in America ever do that, right? Now, there's a reason that the prosperity gospel was born here because it's a place where you can actually make money. And it's very easy to equate material prosperity with God's prosperity. And say, well, if God's really blessing me, I'm going to be rich. Right? This isn't a new problem. Only in America could a pastor say something like, you know, if Jesus were alive today, he'd drive a Rolls Royce. And that's why I do. Well, what is that? That's just conflating exactly what the world wants and thinking, oh, that's what Jesus wants for me too. We can do that all the time in the Christian life without even knowing it, that we just substitute the standard. I mean, I've done that in my own ministry. You, a lot of you know that I, I had to be kind of dragged into this role by God kicking and screaming. I did not want to succeed my dad as the pastor. And, and here's one reason I didn't, I'm convinced of it, is I had a very worldly definition of what success in ministry looked like. Here's why I wanted to plant a church. And at least one reason I wanted to plant a church was this. I wanted to be an entrepreneur. <laughs> right? In, in Silicon Valley culture, where is the glory? It's not in taking something over, is it? You got to be a starter. You got to be innovative. And so I wanted to be that pastor who said, I took a church of zero. And now it's just bursting at the seams with health and life and growth. And I started it. Even if I failed at it, right? It's I started the thing and failed it. It's a heroic failure, right? That's way more heroic than I took a healthy church of 500. And we just kind of kept doing things. And hopefully it's still healthy. There's no glory in that story, right? And God had to convict me that I had imposed, what, a worldly definition, a Silicon Valley definition of success on the gospel, on the Christian life. Does that make sense? How are you doing that? Where is it that I can be content in Christ if I need to meet this worldly standard would be okay too? Wealth, status, influence, prestige. And now what Paul's going to do in the rest of this passage is just blow this idea up entirely. In the most stark way he possibly can. He says, Corinthians, this is how you view yourselves. Well, look at us, apostles, Christian leaders. Frankly, I, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as not first in the world, but what? Last of all. Like men sentenced to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. And now he gets really sarcastic. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, 
but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. Paul's words are just dripping with irony here. Dripping with irony because we saw in chapter 1 how the values of the kingdom are antithetical to the values of the world, right? We saw how the, the gospel is foolishness to the world, right? And, and the gospel works through the weak and the insignificant and the dishonored. In fact, God uses the weak and the dishonored and the significant to shame the world. God's ways of doing things are completely upside down. And Paul's saying in the eyes of the world, we are fools. But you're trying to be wise in the eyes of the world. We're weak and despised. You're strong. You're impressive in the eyes of the world. We're, we're dishonored in the eyes of the world, but, but you are impressive. What's the subtext? You aren't living by the values of what? The kingdom. You aren't embracing the gospel, even though you will be looked at as fools in the world. You aren't embracing the weakness of service to others. You want to be first, just like the world. You, you aren't taking the lower seat and putting others ahead of you. You want the first seat, just like the world. See the problem here? They thought that earthly success and gospel success were the same thing. And Paul's saying, if you look at our lives, the leaders you're following, we have a completely different scorecard we're playing by. Completely different. We're just trying to look like Jesus. He puts this in the most stark way possible. He says that God has made us a spectacle. Do you know what that word spectacle means? Theater. God has made us theater to the world. Uh, think gladiator, right? And uh, the gladiatorial games. You know, the men sentenced to death who were theater, do you know when they came in to the gladiatorial games? At the very end, there would be this procession of the honorable in society, of the well-to-do, and they would come and they would sit in their luxury boxes to watch the games, and then the competitors would come in from highest honor to least honor, and the last people to walk into that arena, do you know who they were? The lowest criminals, the scum of the earth, the people who would be executed. And that's who Paul says we are as apostles. That's how the world views us. Corinthians, you think the Christian life puts you up in the luxury box watching the gladiatorial games. We're, we are the ones coming in last, sentenced to death. We are the ones who will be killed. The gladiatorial games were awful, barbaric, cruel beyond belief, horrifyingly shameful. You got to get the, the Russell Crowe image out of their head, right? Paul isn't like, I'm going to go in and kill people. It's like, no, I'm going to get thrown to the lions as the scum of the earth. That's what Paul is saying. That's how the world views me because I follow Jesus. Now, we might hear that and think, poor Paul, how terrible. But here's the point. Paul doesn't say poor Paul. He says, no, this is God's doing. Who has made Paul and the apostles a spectacle to the world? It's God who has done this. Here's Paul's point. This is the way we are becoming like Christ, is by suffering for his sake. That's why he goes on to say this, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. Now, who does that sound like? This sounds like Jesus in his ministry, who was weary, who was reviled, 
who was poorly dressed, who, who didn't have a place to lay, lay his head. Matthew 8, foxes have holes. The son of man does not have a place to lay his head. Jesus worked with his hands. You know, in Roman culture, it was despised to be a manual laborer, right? The, the really well-to-do of society, they, they had all the white-collar jobs. If you did something with your hands, like Paul as a tent maker or like Jesus as a carpenter, you were looked down on. That's Paul. Look at, next, go back one. He says, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. What does that sound like? Bless those who persecute you. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. See, Paul knows that in the eyes of the world, he's the scum, the, the, the stuff that you would clean off of yourself. That's what Paul's talking about. But he says, you know, that's how Jesus was viewed too. In fact, Jesus was the one who was cursed and blessed and returned and, and who was slandered and not revile in return, but entreated and was treated poorly. And, and, you know, you think about Jesus' earthly ministry. And by any human standard, does it look like a success? This was your chance to talk back to me. <laughs> no. Obscurity? Suffering, small places he's ministering among forgotten people. And then at the end of his life, he's rejected and betrayed and rejected even by his closest friends. I mean, it's the saddest story you can think of, isn't it? And yet we know that's what accomplished the greatest good. And Paul says, I don't view myself as a victim because I'm suffering for Christ. I'm just walking like my master. I'm not superior to my master. If Christ had to suffer, I will suffer. If he was hungry, I'm going to be hungry. If he was rejected, I'm going to be rejected. If he was persecuted, I'm going to be per This is God's doing to make me like Jesus. And this is actually what God uses to accomplish God's purposes. Here's the mind-blowing thing he says. Corinthians, that's success in the Christian life. That's it. It's looking like Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that all of us are going to suffer like Paul. The vast majority of us will not suffer for our faith like that. But it does mean that following Jesus will always mean rejecting worldly standards to pursue God's. And often, being, following God's standards will mean being lowered in the eyes of the world, not raised up. That'll kill comparison, won't it? Here's the point. God's standards <laughs> and the world's standards, there's an inverse relationship. You know what an inverse relationship? I'm not good at math, but I'll try to explain it. Inverse relationship is when one variable in the equation goes up, the other one goes down, and vice versa. I cannot pursue the world standard as my goal and God's. In fact, the more I pursue God's, the less impressive it will look to the world. That crucifies comparison. That's an inverse relationship. It's like my, it's like my relationship with the Niners, right? As my expectations for them go up, their performance goes down. That's why I have no expectations anymore. I just assume they're going to do, because they seem to do better when I, have, when I think they're going to do horribly. So, right? That's an inverse relationship. But, but here's the thing. Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Right? 
To, to pursue Christ's standards is to reject the world's standards, and there will always be a cost. The world says, seek comfort. Jesus says, endure suffering and self-denial for my sake. The world says, do things to get approval from others. Jesus says, do things for the applause of your father and seek obscurity. Seek to not be known. The world says, accumulate wealth. Jesus says, be generous, even sacrificially with your wealth. The world says, seek the top spot. Jesus says, seek the bottom spot. And to be a servant of all. Can those things coexist? No. You cannot pursue Jesus and worldly success at the same time. Jesus has crucified that forever through his life and death. It's done. And, and the sooner you become okay with that, the sooner you can be okay just being seen as a failure in the eyes of the world. And family, there are just little ways you're going to have to make these decisions all the time. As a parent, with the choices you make for your kids, you're going to have to do this. And you're going to look crazy to the world. I, my son loves sports. And here's the tension I always feel. Like his athletic success and his church attendance are inversely related. They are. It, for him to faithfully attend church, he's going to miss games. He is. And every time I have that conversation with my coach, hey, here's the ones we can make. Here's what we can't. Here's why. They're like, huh, huh. You know, they're, they're, a, little, they're a little confused. And I remember I was, I, I was going to pick up Jake from practice, and it wasn't his coach. It was another coach. And, and this coach is talking to his coach. He's like, well, I can't come to the game on Sunday because I have church. And his coach is like, skip church. It's an important game. And, and Jake and I just looked at each other and laughed, right? Because it's like in the eyes of the world, this is crazy. What could be more important than 10-year-olds winning soccer, right? This is like... This is the most important thing, not gathering, you know, with God's people on heaven and earth to see the living Christ minister to his people. Who cares about that, right? We're talking about 10-year-olds playing soccer, right? Like, but again, all of those things have a cost. There's always a cost. I cannot pursue wealth and generosity at the same time. I cannot pursue acclaim and service at the same time. They're inversely related. So you just got to get over it and realize that being like Jesus means just being out of step with every standard of the world. Does that make sense? Here's the great news. That's the most liberating news imaginable. Because the most enslaving thing imaginable is to play the comparison game. Here's why. It never ends. It never ends. I was reading an article this week about Intra-elite competition in America. Intra-elite, what's that? There are more elites in America now than there were three decades ago, right? More people who make $10 million, way more. Um, way more people with lots and lots of wealth. But the elite positions haven't grown correspondingly. <laughs> so you got a lot of people with a lot of money who want to play the game, but there's still this many admission spots to Harvard, Right? are to these elite colleges. There's still only 100 Senate seats, 435 congressional seats. So you have a lot of people who want to play the game, but limited games to play. And so you ask, like, why do filthy rich celebrity parents break the law to get their kids into schools? Right? That's not going to give them more money. Why would they do that? It's status. It's honor. It's a perception of power. Do you see? You, you can never get enough to break free from this. 
The only way to get free is to stop playing the game. And the only thing that liberates you from the game is the cross. Paul says it this way in Galatians 6, 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world and all its standards has been crucified to me and I to the world. I don't care what people think of me, Paul says. I don't. The world is dead to me. I am dead to the world. Those standards mean nothing. On the day Jesus returns, no one will care what anyone thought about anything except what Jesus thinks about them in their life at that moment. That's it. And so many things people held in such honor will be completely dishonored in that moment. And so many things the world despised will be seen as the most beautiful, precious, enduring things of all. The crucifixion of Jesus is the crucifixion of comparison. Jesus lived the most shameful life imaginable and got the most honor. And, and here's what I'd say to you. If you don't know Jesus, you're going to be enslaved to this game until you believe in him. Because only Jesus can free you to live for a different standard, the true standard, and that's his. And the beautiful thing about the cross is that Jesus already gives you a status in his kingdom that's unimaginably high. You are justified. You are sanctified. You are vindicated. You have eternal honor and glory coming from who? You couldn't want more status. Why do you need to compare? Look at what you already have. Let's pray. So God, I pray we would fix our eyes on you and see you as our righteousness, our wisdom, our redemption, our sanctification, our glory, our crown of joy, that Jesus, who we are in you is all that matters. That, that we have all the status and honor we could ever want, and so Jesus, we don't need to vie for those things. In fact, we can take the low road. And I pray you would help us to see what that means, the self-denial it entails for us, Jesus, whether it's a little thing or a big thing. But God, would we see that becoming like you Jesus, and following your example, it's not an ascent to greatness, it's a descent into dependence. Lord, will we lose our lives for your sake because there we find them. I pray in your name, amen.